Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to ask if baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. He is out. Look at, look at this. Freddy is out. And uh, team is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Uh, of course, Saturday mornings from 10 to 12 right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, a reminder, anything that I talk about, discuss, uh, you want to get your input available, of course, because this is an interactive program, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, and of course, we're going to jump right into stuff that everybody else is talking about, but I'm going to put my own little spin on it, my own little opinion uh, of what I think is really happening with this whole biogenesis thing. And, you know, in regards to Alex Rodriguez, you look at the other players that were all announced the suspensions this past week, 50-game uh, bans for all, all the players involved, for the exception of Alex Rodriguez and, of course, Ryan Braun. And Ryan Braun, of course, accepted a 65-game suspension a little bit, uh, you know, about three, three, four weeks ago. Alex Rodriguez, of course, 212 games announced by Major League Baseball, something that is totally different from the collective bargaining agreement. They don't have a drug test to say that he tested positive for the exception of the anonymous one, which I have a little bit of an issue with. But I'm also not going to come across like I'm this guy that's out to avenge or to defend Alex Rodriguez. What he has done, he obviously messed up. He screwed up. He did what he was not supposed to do. And obviously there's a penalty that he's going to have to face for it. And I think that this is a guy that understands that what he did is worthy of a suspension in some way, shape, or form. But I think the issue and the reason why this guy is going to appeal the whole thing is because he feels it's excessive. And if you look at what Major League Baseball has done, maybe in collaboration with the Yankees or not, this is a situation where they want to make a statement based on this one guy. And if they can get Alex Rodriguez, essentially get him out of the game, then maybe it makes a stand towards steroids and their place in baseball and the, the way it should end up being going. Bottom line is you got a 50-game ban for a first-time offense, a 100-game ban for a second-time offense. Where does that fit into the penalties that were issued out to Alex Rodriguez? You know, and, and people say, oh, man, how could you say anything like that? All, all the rhetoric, anything that you have to say has to be anti-Alex Rodriguez. Screw him. Get him out of the game. Nobody wants him there. And I'm not saying he, he belongs in baseball. I'm not saying that he should continue playing. 
Uh, to me, the guy has a contract where he signed for the next four seasons after this. The, the bottom line is he's going he's gonna to play as long as he possibly can until his, his, his whatever ailing him in his body doesn't, isn't able to work anymore. And the fact that he made his debut for the season on Monday, the same Monday that MLB announced the suspensions in regards to biogenesis, is, is a sign that this guy wants to play. And based on what you see on the field, I don't think he's washed up. I think he'd give a couple more weeks to actually see where he is. And I bet you in the end he's going to put up numbers that are somewhat comparable of what you saw in a regular season when he hit 272 and hit 18 home runs and drove in a handful of runs for the New York Yankees. He's probably close to that player when he's at 100%. So in regards to, hey, the guy's washed up, he should just give it up, uh, that's a lot of sour grapes from a lot of fans and a lot of people that follow the game of baseball that they just want to see blood. They want to see this guy out to make a statement for whatever it is. A lot of people's statement is re in regards to just simply not liking the guy, which I'm, I'm, not, I'm not willing to take that as an acceptable excuse. I mean, there's plenty of people you come across, whether it's in your work life, whether they're professional athletes that you follow that you simply don't like. And you know, to just go out there and say, hey, I don't like this guy. He should be gone from baseball. I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's. A, I don't think it's that big of a deal, to that your opinion of disliking a professional athlete sh should value into the way of the opinion of what should actually happen. But in regards to Alex Rodriguez, the bottom line is now that the suspension has been handed out, and now that this guy is playing back, he's back into playing shape. He's active. He's on the active roster. He's in the Yankee lineup, and will probably be for the foreseeable future. He's going to play for the rest of the season here. And whether the Yankees get themselves back in the pennant race or not, it, it, it's not going to matter. Alex Rodriguez will be in the Yankee lineup essentially until this season's over. And a lot of people expect to get the quick reaction, the quick ar arbitrator's discussion and the hearings and the whole thing. This is something that takes a long time. And one thing that doesn't get mentioned really that often is the whole process that's been collectively bargained between the players and the owners in regards to Major League Baseball's drug treatment and prevention program. You have a situation where a player finds out about a positive test. And we're going to get into the positive test first, and then I'll tell you how it relates to what's going on with A-Rod and why this is not a process that's going to be dealt with and handled overnight. But the way it's set up is you have a failed test. The, the player and their agent and the Major League Baseball Players Association are, are notified. Once they're notified, they have a choice. They could either accept the suspension then or they could go through the appeal process. Now, understand, when we're in this situation and it, it is going to the appeal process, this is not a public matter. The public does not know about it. Remember Melky Cabrera last year. Melky Cabrera was notified of his suspension for a failed drug test under the Drug Pre Treatment and Prevention Program in spring training, after spring training, around the beginning of the season. Did we hear anything about it until after the All-Star game? No. And look at what Melky Cabrera did. He had a ridiculous season. He was hitting 350. He was the All-Star game MVP. And all of a sudden, we were talking about how this guy's going to get a five, six, seven-year contract when he hits free agency because he's one of the top outfielders in all of baseball based on his performance. And would you think that if there was any, if there was any breach here, if there was anything stuck in the middle where there was any leaks that would go out, a leak would obviously have come out about him failing the drug test, and it didn't. It didn't until after the All-Star break when, when the, the appeal was heard and the uh, suspension was upheld. 
And and once once that became once that became a fact, that's when he served his 50 game suspension. And obviously, you see everything that happened in, in regards to it since. That being said, you look at you look at these suspensions, and you think it's su- such a simple thing. And this is what the general public thinks. They think it's just such a simple thing. Hey, there's either a failed drug test or there's a connection to this biogenesis thing. And once that's figured out, it's all becoming public, and everybody is supposed to know about it. That's not the case. And, and I've, you're dealing with a different type of situation here. We're talking about something that ends up happening totally and completely different in the way this biogenesis thing was handled. Because you had an anti-aging clinic in Florida run by Tony Bosch, and it ends up getting shut down. Everything gets confiscated. They got all the records. So they don't, they're not dealing with failed drug tests. But they, what they have is evidence that the players that were linked to this thing were using the performance-enhancing drugs. And, you know, they don't have evidence of it being in their system, but they have evidence via uh, payments, files, certain chemicals that were, were issued to certain players. So that gives them the case in order to, uh, you know, have suspensions in regards to this thing. Now, some people want to say that it's something that should be all, all, all of a sudden a separate matter and make it a criminal thing and not take it in Major League Baseball's case and say that it has to be run like a criminal trial. Like, hey, you got charges for uh, you know, wanting to buy the drugs, buying the drugs, buying the needles, injecting them in you, throwing away the syringe at the end. But that, that's not the way it works. It, everything involves a due process. And we look, at, we look at things in life and we realize that people that are convicted of heinous crimes such as murder and rape and stuff like that, that they are given their due process. No matter how guilty they seem before a trial starts, they have the right and the ability and you know the, um, the American God-given thing to, to, have, to have proper representation and present their case because it's a situation where they're innocent until proven guilty. And now we're talking about Major League Baseball, and people are so fed up about the steroids. They just want, they, they're so tired of it. They hate it. They, they want to get every single player that's ever done a performance enhancing drug. And they want to just take away the rights of all types of baseball players that have that same due process. So you're going to tell me that if there's a murderer out there that convicts a crime in cold blood, is going to still have the right to get an attorney and present their side of the case and is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. You're going to tell me that these that these players are not entitled to that same type of representation? I mean, are, 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 we, talk, are we talking about the fact or have we gotten into a time where using performance-enhancing drugs is worse than convicting, you know, than doing murder? You know, you kill somebody. That's not as bad as using performance-enhancing drugs? Come on. I mean, if a murderer has a right to have a due process and a trial, then the same should be for every one of these players that wants to appeal a performance-enhancing drug suspension. Now, Major League Baseball did a good job here, and here's where I'll give them some credit. The players that they got, the 12 or 13 or so players that they got in this thing, they got them all to plea to a certain agreement of their suspension. So in other words, every player from Nelson Cruz to Jahani Peralta, Everett Cabrera, Jordani Valdespin, Cesar Puello, Francesco Cervelli, Fausto De Los Santos, uh, Jordan Nor- Nor- Norberto, uh, and then, you know, obviously all the other names that were involved in this thing, they got every single one of those players to waive their right to a trial, to waive their right to an arbitration hearing, and waive their right 
to proper representation by the Players Association of Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball did a good job with that. They got them to waive their right and say, listen, I'll just take the penalty. But what is to say and what reasons do you think that Alex Rodriguez should go out there and do the same thing? I mean, if he was given a 50-game suspension, it would be one thing. If you want to say uh, a 100-game suspension, whatever, whatever it was, if it was a lesser penalty, you could make a bigger case that this guy could have very easily just said, all right, that's it, uh, I'm going to take the suspension. But it's not. It's obviously a point where Major League Baseball wanted to use him as a, as, a, as a point of reference to make a stand with him and burn him worse than any of these other players are getting burned. Now, obviously, all the facts aren't out there. Obviously, all the evidence and the way things are set up is not out there, and we don't know every single fact. We don't know what they have on Alex Rodriguez. We obviously know that he purchased you know, the chemicals down at the biogenesis clinic down in Florida, and we know that, that he, he probably used them. There's records to show that he purchased it. There's records to probably show that, that he communicated with certain other people getting him to come to the clinic. There's, there's probably evidence to say that he tampered with the evidence in some way, shape, or form. But until all this becomes public, it's hearsay. It's neither you nor I know exactly what they have in this situation. And if Alex Rodriguez, as an individual, feels like he is burnt in this situation, that they're trying to make an example out of him, and the penalties that are issued to him are, are that excessive, then he has the right to appeal it. And he should have the right to appeal it. So all, all those people that are out there saying that, oh, what is Alex Rodriguez doing? Just take the suspension. Go on with your life. Get out of here. He has the right to that fair due process that that murderer has. He has the right to that same due process that any player that is implicated in anything in regards to the drug treatment and prevention program of Major League Baseball. They have the same rights. They have the right to go to a trial. They have the right to have their case heard by an arbiter. And even if this is a guilty until proven innocent situation, he still has the right to have his side of the story told. And whatever he chooses to admit to, obviously he's not going to admit to it in, in, in his first interview on Monday. He's not going to admit to it no matter how many times he goes up in front of the, the, the press and no matter how many press conferences he does from here on out. He's obviously not going to have that, that he's not going to give away anything that he has done or hasn't done. And if you ask him the question, hey, you know, did you do steroids? He's not going to answer that. The bottom line is, just like any other case, the facts are going to be gathered and they're going to be presented in front of the arbiter, and the arbiter will have a choice. He could, he could either uphold the suspension, and once his suspension's uphold, it'll, it'll be effective immediately. He'll be suspended for 211 games. But if not, you know, they'll, they'll talk about whether it should be reduced, whether it should be reduced at all. Maybe he comes out, and I don't think this will happen, but may, maybe there's a situation where he's not suspended at all. That's unlikely, obviously. But, you know, in regards to Alex Rodriguez, we're looking at a guy that, you know, is probably do no worse than what he has done right now. I mean, he's got a 211-game suspension, which is the longest suspension handed out to a, a major league player or manager since Pete Rose was banned for life. And, and that's, that, that's, that, that, that's crazy. I mean, is, 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 he, is he worth that kind of suspension? Does he... Does, should he have to serve that many games out of baseball? I mean, maybe. And that's what's pretty arbiter to, to listen to Major League Baseball's case and why he should be suspended for that long. And Alex Rodriguez to have the opportunity 
to present the facts and talk about why he thinks it's excessive and to present the facts based on what he did. And once that's done, the arbiter will make a ruling. But Alex Rodriguez, by not appealing, would, would have simply just taken a 211-game suspension, would have been foolish. And get do, for, do me a favor for one second if you're an Alex Rodriguez hater. Get your hate out of your system for one second and listen to this objectively. Why would Alex Rodriguez accept a suspension when the suspension is going to be the absolute worst-case scenario? If he accepts it without a fight, there's no chance that it could get reduced. There's no chance that you know he could use the high-powered attorneys, the Roy Blacks, and the guys that he hired to represent him to bring out the best case from his perspective. He would have just simply signed a paper and not played until, the, until 2015. I know a lot of people want to see that. Absolutely. And me, I'm, ne- I'm indifferent. I'm neither here nor there. He gets suspended, he gets suspended. But I'm looking at it from the, from the rights of an individual person that everybody else is given in the United States of America. The right to a due process, the right to, to a trial, and the right to get proper representation and present your own case. And he should be innocent until proven guilty, even though the evidence in this case swings towards him being guilty. And if it's determined that the penalty imposed on Alex Rodriguez is excessive, then you have a situation where he's going to get a reduced suspension. And I I think, you know, if you you meet somewhere in the middle of 100, 150 games maybe, that could be something that still could be negotiated before it goes to trial, which is a possibility. It's unlikely. I mean, I think I think you're looking at the likely scenario here is a situation where the you know the players' association is going to back Alex to a certain point, and Major League Baseball is going to say, "Listen, we we made it this far. We might as well go to the arbiter and see what he has to say." And in the end, we'll see how it turns up. But the bottom line is, Alex Rodriguez is going to be playing third base with a little bit of DH for the New York Yankees until the end of this season, because. The due process and the way things go with the arbitration hearing is not going to be heard until at least October or November. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. A reminder, just uh, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. I'll be answering tweets throughout the duration of this program. We're going to take our first break of the day. Be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com 
and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. You're listening to MTR Radio, powered by mtrmedia.com. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, finishing up. A lot of things going on here. And one thing I want to start out by getting into, and of course, you know, the Bases Empty blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing. I got into a couple of historical aspects. And, you know, one of them was from a long time ago. The other one was from, uh, both of them were kind of kind of fairly recent. I'm going to touch a little bit on on uh, Thurman Munson. As obviously, we hit the anniversary of his uh, passing and, of course, the subsequent game in which he, uh, he, you know, the Yankees ended up winning the game for him. I'm going to start out, though, by going back to a season that, listen, stands out because it's the only time it ever happened. And it was so long ago, obviously, it took place around the time of World War II, and that was the St. Louis Browns of 1944. And what, what stands out about the St. Louis Browns, of course, is the fact that that was the only year that they won an American League pennant in their history. And you looked at the fact that they, prior to 1944, the Browns had finished in second place just twice. Other than that, they were kind of a bottom-of-the-league team. They weren't very good, and they were kind of known as being the lovable losers. And it wasn't until they ended up going to uh, Baltimore, which is, was exactly 10 years after they won the American League pennant, that they started having some success. And even after 1954, it wasn't until, what, 1967? Well, do I got it right? 1967 against the Dodgers in the World Series when they ended up uh, winning there? It wasn't until then where they became a postseason team and, of course, you know, obviously had some success after that, winning the World Series in 1970, winning the pennant in 69, of course, winning more pennants in 71 and 79 in the World Series in 83. But the St. Louis Browns as a franchise were really known not, not to really have too many stars. And one guy that stood out, and when I wrote this article, I actually had somebody reach out to me, and I give him a little credit because we had a little bit of a good discussion back and forth. Vern Stevens was a shortstop of the 44 Browns, probably one of the best players that had a majority of their career with the St. Louis Browns franchise. But my point about him not being a dominant star player was the fact that he didn't emerge until his years in Boston later on. His 1944 season was kind of a breakout season where he started putting up some very good numbers, but... In regards to the 44 Browns, remember, uh, the league had kind of gotten to a point where it was watered down because of the war. By 1944 1945, uh, you know, United States of America was full force in World War II. So most people that were going to represent the country in the military were already there. And that included, obviously, several former players, several current players at the time, guys like Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams, Bob Feller. And there you got Yankees, Red Sox, Indians, three AL teams that were certainly shorthanded because of the star power that was missing, you know, defending the United States of America in the war. So a team like the Browns end up kind of putting, piecing some things together. And let's be honest, this was a situation where they didn't have necessarily any stars themselves. But this was a situation where they kind of put things together uh, during the course of the season and beat 
the Detroit Tigers in a very close race for the American League title. And it, what was interesting about the 44 Tigers, of course, won the AL pennant in World Series a year later against the Chicago Cubs. Chicago Cubs have not been to a World Series since, yada, yada, yada. But the Tigers had a very impressive story because they were led by pitchers Dizzy Trout and Hal Newhauser. Hal Newhauser finished with a 29-9 record. Dizzy Trout was 27-14. That was a combined 56-23. and The rest of the staff won a combined 32-43. and Left the team with an 88-66 and record, one game behind the Browns. And, you know, the fact that it was a, their only postseason appearance for the Browns, and we've talked about the Orioles who ended up uh, getting getting back there some years later and having that good team. They didn't really have any star power. Vern Stevens hit 293, 20 homers, 109 RBIs with 32 doubles and 91 runs scored. Mark Christman was the third baseman, drove in 83 runs. First baseman George McQuinn had 11 home runs, and that was second on the team. Second baseman Don Gooderich uh, ended up, uh, you know, ended up stealing uh, 20 bases. And we're going to put that on hold, and we're going to take this call in from uh, former Major League catcher Jim Laritz. Jim, you there, buddy? Hey, what's happening? Hey, what's going on, man? Thanks for having some time. I appreciate it. No problem. No problem. Hey, listen, before we get into your playing career, uh, you know, tell the listeners a little bit about what, you know, what you're doing with the motivational speaking and, you know, you know how, how well that's going. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's a, there's a couple different things I'm doing. I'm doing some of them are church-related, some of them are business-related. The uh, church-related ones are more just about, you know, faith and perseverance and basically, you know, what I did during my career as far as never being drafted, never giving up and always, you know, just striving to, to try to make it to the big leagues. And, of course, eventually making it to New York and, you know, having the big moments and uh, all that other stuff. But then also the, uh, the three-year struggle that I went through as far as waiting for trial in order to clear my name. Um, and what that was like, and how through you know through, through the church, through you know faith and perseverance, again, I waited those three years instead of taking the easy way out and taking a plea or taking something that you know uh, that I didn't believe in. And so that's that's kind of one type of speaking I've been doing. The other one is basically uh, with business and corporations and things like that, to where I talk about how you know, sometimes you don't get along with your managers or your your bosses and but there's still ways to be successful. And, you know, I was able to do that my whole career. I, I wasn't, you know, the uh, the boss's favorite, so to say, but at the same time, I was a very integral part that the boss needed. And there were certain ways that you can go about, um, you know, doing those things that you can uh, be successful. And, uh, you know, every team that I went to play for, uh, we usually end up having some pretty good success. You know, San Diego, the Yankees, uh, you know, and, and the, you know, even the Angels. The short time I was here, you know, I was chasing Dixon's personal catcher and turned him into an All Star his first year. So, you know, there's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of things like that, you know, that, that I talk about. So, that's kind of the motivational speaking that I've done. Yeah, that's pretty uh, interesting. And I tell you, I mean, probably for the people that are listening, could could make relationships to their own life, no matter what it is that they do for a living that they could kind of make a comparison to, all right, when, you know, when times don't go right, you know, stay positive, have the, have the right attitude and you'll be able to get through it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, and I think that's just it. I think one of the things that, you know, I'm watching A-Rod go through what he's going through and, you know, as, as a person who doesn't feel sorry for him one bit because he's, he's pretty much brought everything on himself, 
I'm kind of curious on what's going to be the process and what, and what he feels like his fight is against this. And who knows, you know, what the media has covered and what they've said is one thing. You know, as a person who knows all too well, uh, what they say and what the actual truth and the facts are are going to be completely different, possibly. And, you know, I'm, I am waiting to see with everything that I've heard. Now, I have a little, a little more insight than most people do through my stuff, but uh, with everything that I've heard and everything that, you know, has gone on behind the scenes, um, he's in trouble. But at the same time, obviously his camp feels like there's something that they feel like they can either reduce the sentence or they can, you know, just get it down a little bit more than what it really is. And I think that's, you know, that's going to be what, what we're going to sit around and wait and wait and wait to find out. And, you know, when that day comes, then it'll be the day that, you know, like I said, I heard him say, his worst days are right, it was, was yesterday. Well, I have to think that if any kind of ruling comes down against him, that his worst days are, are still ahead of No, very true. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with Jim Laritz. Now, Jim, uh, one thing I do want to touch on, you know, since you, since you brought it up, I kind of mentioned this earlier on my show, and I was talking about, I was talking about Alex Rodriguez and the stuff that he's going through. Do you, do you feel? I mean, I, I feel like he does have the right to due process and the right to you know defend himself. And we live in a country where you are innocent until proven guilty, no matter how guilty you may seem. And and I, I, I my my point of the whole thing was the fact that. You know what? Nobody may agree with the way he's going about it, and the fact that this thing's going to drag on a little longer. But but do, don't, do you think that he does deserve to write to just have his case heard, even if the thing ends up getting upheld, at least to kind of speak his own case? Oh yeah, I mean well, that's, that's the whole thing about our system is, is he does have that right, and unfortunately, most personalities in, that are public personalities don't get that opportunity. Usually, they're convicted before they even get that opportunity. And like I said, someone who went through it, someone who's been through that, um, and, and of course, as you saw my results, uh, obviously, what, what they're saying is not, is not true. Um, and I think maybe Alex does feel, in a way, that 11 games might be too much. I, I don't think that he's going to say that he's completely innocent. Um, at the same time, I think maybe the punishment that he's receiving, maybe him and his camp feel that that is just that that's not fair, and that's what he's really fighting for. Um, and that remains to be seen. Like I said, you know, obviously there's something that they feel uh, that they do have an argument or they wouldn't be doing it. They would have accepted it. I think originally it was 150 games if he accepted it. Uh, the fact that he didn't accept it, they still kept it at 211. So I think, uh, you know, it's, like I said, it's going to be one of those things that we have to sit and wait, unfortunately. But at the same time, the way Alex has handled himself, the way he... Uh, and there's, you know, there's 2007 interview, there's 2009 interview. Um, you know, you, you, you only get so many strikes and, uh, as far as public opinion goes. And you know what? I think he's pretty much struck out there. Now it's just a matter of whether or not he can go and save any remaining part of his career or any remaining part of his contract um, with whatever he feels like he has in his favor to go ahead and do that. And that, like I said, that remains to be seen when we have the appeal process. Yeah, and like I said, after after time goes by, it'll sort us out one way or the other. But you know, unfortunately, the public is going to continue to you know feel feel like they need to get updates on you know an everyday basis. But you know, Jim, you obviously you had a, you had a very good career. You started your career in a New York Yankees organization uh, when you first came up. You kind of came up through a couple of the lean years, really 1990, 1991. 
uh, you know, stump, the Stump Merrill years. And, you know, while you were there, you saw the team kind of get better. First, you know, when you, started, when you started out in the early 90s at the Major League level with the Yankees, uh, tell us a little bit about being up by that team at that, at, at that time. Well, I think one of the biggest, and I don't call it a certain injustice because his name has been mentioned, but Gene Michael and Buck Showalter started that or, started that organization back on the right foot. And one of the things that I always talk about, Buck, is I wish there was more minor league coaches that took pride in an organization as much as Buck did, you know, because I came up with him through the minor leagues, and he he really made you feel like when you stepped in, into Yankee Stadium for the first time what a privilege and an honor that it would be just to put those pinstripes on. And he did that even from the minor league level. And basically it's not a coincidence that when he took over in 93 that everything finally started to change. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't get past the 95 season. But he, him and G. Michael were the ones that orchestrated and built that organization to when Joe Torrey took over, Joe was able to reap the benefits and, you know, and keep it going and keeping the players, you know, uh, the egos out of the locker room, and Joe did a great job of that. But like I said, honestly, Buck Showalter uh, was a huge, huge key to that. And, uh, you know, that's the one thing that I kind of say, you know, I wasn't a Yankee growing up. I grew up in Cincinnati with the big red machine. But my four years in the minor leagues with Buck taught me what it was like to put on those things from the day that I walked in there that I didn't just say, okay, great, I got another uniform. I knew what it meant to be a New York Yankee. And like you mentioned, those lean years, we lost 94 games the one year, 92 the next. I mean, we weren't, you know, we were, we were, and I was a young kid coming up who at the time, Gene Michael even told me, if you don't do well, you're going to block the road. He's going to down there. Because in the minor leagues, that was our big joke was, if you play for the Yankees in the minor leagues, you got a job somewhere in the big leagues because they don't bring their players up. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I came up in 90. I got off to a great start. It opened the door for Kevin Moss. Kevin Moss came up, opened the door for more. by hitting 24 home runs in his first 100 at-bats. And all of a sudden, you know, the organization itself started to realize, wait a minute, we got some pretty good players here, and we ought to be giving them a chance. And that, that is slowly what happened uh, through that, that era right there, up until 96, until Joe came in that these days started giving the Bernie Williams, the Sterling Hitchcocks, uh, you know, the, Bernie, you know, those guys an opportunity to play. No, very true, man. So, and I'll tell you, really, if it wasn't, I'm sure if it wasn't for, you know, guys like you and Kevin Moss kind of, uh, you know, g getting off to good starts, you know, maybe maybe as time goes on, you know, these other players don't get that chance. Maybe they're either, they're either sitting in the minors or they're traded off to get, you know, more expensive pieces down the road. Well, that was just it. You know, Mr. Steinberg at that time was suspended from baseball, so he, you know, they, they didn't they didn't have to worry about him trying to go out and get the free agents and all the other stuff. And it gave G. Michael an opportunity to run that organization. And I, I believe Randy Levine was was part of that also. We give them an opportunity to run that organization and give the kids, you know, the, the young kids a chance. And you know, like I said, it, it was a it was a bold move, but it paid off. And you know, from 95, basically 94 on, um, with bringing in a couple guys that, you know, the, the, the Paul O'Neill, the Wade Boggs, the guys that everybody thought their careers were kind of just stalemated, uh, brought them in there, and we were able to gel between the young kids and these, these veteran guys to show us the way, really how it was. I mean, Don Mattingly was, you know, the integral part of me and some of the young kids in the early 90s coming up that he just... He took us under his wing, and then you know he just kind of just said, "Listen, here we are. You know, you guys are no different. 
I, you know, I'm hurt. I need you guys to help fill in. And uh, that's why myself and Kevin Moss and those guys got an opportunity because even though we got there, Donnie was there to help us and, and, to, and, to, and to kind of guide us. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Piello, former Major League catcher Jim Laritz. Now, you know, I think we you spend a lot of time, people talk about, you know, the teams of the late 90s with the Yankees, and obviously as it went over in, into the next century. But the, the teams that you guys had in 93, 94, 95 were not bad at all. I mean, after Buck's first season, you, know, you guys had a losing year in 92. But, you know, af- after that, there was three straight winning seasons culminating with the uh, postseason appearance in 1995. Uh, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about the teams in 93 to 95, which obviously still had Manningly and, uh, you know, made the postseason, of course, in 95 for the first time. Yeah, you know, unfortunately we lost the season in 94, which probably would have been our first postseason experience. Um, you know, and, and that season was lost. But then we came back, and I think it made us even more hungry in 95 to, to do it, knowing, too, that going into that season – with Donnie's back the way it had been and as, as hurt as he had been, that this was probably going to be his last season. And, you know, it, it, it was kind of an extra motivation that we had to, to get him finally to that first playoff. And, uh, you know, I remember the day in Toronto, Donnie's kneeling down and pounding the ground and just realizing, okay, you know what, I finally made it after all these years. And, uh, you know, we went, to, we went in to see the first two games in New York. We went into Seattle. And I remember getting swept, and the one thing I looked at Donnie, and I just said, would you trade it? And he said, no. He said, that was the greatest series I've ever been a part of. Even though we lost, it was a great series, and, you know, I, I couldn't have asked for anything more. And, uh, it was, it was, like I said, that was, that was a pretty special year. And it started, you know, like I said, what, what we developed over the last four years of the 1990s. Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell you what, what's interesting about that is, of course, everybody knows the story of Don Manningly being the best player on the Yankees for so long and just – uh, kind of being up there at the wrong time. I mean, the Yankees, as far back as they go, were always a perennial, uh, you know, were a perennial pennant-winning team back before divisional play, and after that, you know, had to, to run in the 70s and even, you know, the early part of the 80s. But Don Mattingly happened to be up at that time where, you know, things just weren't going right. A lot of the, a lot of the money that George Steinbrenner was throwing, you know, out to certain players just wasn't panning out. And I tell you, it really must have been special for not only you, but the rest of the Yankees, as well as Don, to really have that 95 season go the way it did and get him to the postseason. Because, like you said, I mean, he, he, he wasn't really able to play after that, probably knew that that was going to be his last season. Well, exactly. You know, Donnie and I are pretty close out here. He's with the Dodgers, and I live out here in California, so I go down and see him every now and then. And, you know, over the last two years, I've been out here spending some more time. We talked about a lot of those things, and, you know, we just – in conversation and the one thing that I always said to him and he kind of he said it to me the other the first time I saw him was all right after everything you did he said I remember you sitting in my locker in 95 complaining that you weren't an everyday player Jimmy I had an opportunity to play every day and I never experienced the World Series you look back now would you rather have been an everyday player or would you have the, have the experiences that you had and it put everything in perspective for me you know just saying you know what you're right you know if, if I I always wanted to be that Don Mattingly at the same time, Don Manley would have given anything to be in my shoes to be able to enjoy the postseason and have some of the moments that I had. And uh, it just really, at this point in my life, it put things in perspective of you know, just how grateful you have to be just to be a part of, uh, of what we went through during those years. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, it's John Pielli. I remember here with Jim Laritz. Now, 
you know, 1996. Of course, you had you had the home run off of Mark Wallers, one of the one of the big moments, and you know, really the his, the postseason history of the of the New York Yankees, and certainly one of the centrical moments of that that Yankee dynasty, which ended up winning the four World Series championships in five years. Take us a little bit about back to that day, you know, the moment, and really, really what it, what it meant to you to hit a home run in such a big spot. Well, you know, it was one of those situations where you know it, it was, um, I, I was basically the only catcher left uh, when they pinch hit for Girardi in the sixth inning. And, you know, we, I always kid Mr. Joe to worry about it. I said, if you had a third catcher, you would have pinch hit for me, wouldn't you? And he said, yeah, probably. That's kind of how the, the, the baseball guys work a little bit. I was, I was fortunate to be able to be in that situation uh, just because, you know, almost by default. Um, but you know what? We, we were sitting in that dugout, I can remember, early, early on, and uh, before the game we met, before game four, and Joe said, listen, if we can get one more of these one of these next two games and get this series back to New York, the Braves don't want to go back and play in that atmosphere again. We'll, we'll win this thing. And, you know, we go out, we're down 6 nothing, and I remember being in the dugout and just looking at a couple of guys and just saying, listen, you know what, thank God we, just, we didn't get swept. You know, and that, I think that was kind of the, the feeling. And then all of a sudden we get the three runs, we chipped away a little bit, and then I just remember seeing Mark Wallers warm up in the bullpen. And I think it's just what Paul O'Neill and Tino Martinez struck out against Balecki, and we knew Wallers was coming in the game. We felt like, okay, that's it. Bobby Cox is, is going for the kill right here. And uh, had we lost that game and been down 3-1, to one, I don't think we had a chance at all to beat Glavin, Maddox, and Smoltz in the next three games. So we were very fortunate uh, to come in against Wallers in that situation. And, uh, you know, I was able to come up at the right time. I mean, Rafael Belliard boots a routine double play ball that would have changed everything. Uh, and, you know, just, just all the things that happened in Charlie Hayes' ball staying fair, you know, Darryl Strawberry coming up with a big hit, all those things that just kind of fell together uh, was, was, was perfect timing. And, you know, once I hit the home run, you know, you could see the reaction of the bench. You could see everybody on there. And then when we win that game, it was just like, you know what, we're going we're, we're gonna to win this thing. The momentum shifted, and we were able to uh, to go ahead and sweep them and you know celebrate Game Six right on Yankee Stadium with all the fans. And you know, to, to me, this that moment, I remember Joe Torre telling me, "Get everybody on the mound, and let's take a circle, let's take a lap, and and thank the fans." And we were all kind of like, well, "Why would we do that?" That's okay. And after we did it, everybody to a T said that was the greatest moment to be able to thank. All of those New York fans, especially for somebody like me who had been with the organization for six years, and I was a senior member on that team, uh, to go around and just thank those people for staying with us throughout those early 90s when we weren't very good. Yeah, I'll tell you what's interesting about it, too, and you look at the whole history of the New York Yankees, that was the longest period of time that they, the, the Yankees went without winning World Series championships from 78 to, uh, you know, to, to 96. And I tell you, it really probably brought back, you know, some of the older generations that remembered what it was like to see the team win the World Series. And I tell you, it must have been an excellent, excellent moment for the fans there. Well, I think it was. And I, like I said, what it did for the organization winning that thing was, you know, Mr. Steinbrenner was ready to get rid of, you know, half the team and start all over again, bringing in new people. And I, I think you might have even considered firing Joe Torre if we didn't win that World Series. And had he done that, can you imagine the next five years, what could have happened possibly compared to what really went, you know, what, what did, what that did do and what it did do for the organization to win the next, you know, the next three out of four. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a great moment. I remember coming back in 99, 
winning the World Series in 99 with them and being on the float in 99 and just saying, you know what, this is, this is awesome. But it's nothing like 96. And I think to all those guys, 96 is probably the most special parade that all those guys that were part of all those teams. Yeah, and I tell you, you obviously have a chance to uh, kind of be on the other side of that in 1998. You end up with the San yeah. Diego Padres. Um, you know, you end up you end up having a very good postseason that year, and you you know the ALDS and the ALC, I, I'm sorry, yeah, the the NLCS and the NLDS. Uh, you know, what what was it like being on the other side? You know, the Padres obviously winning the National League pennant. You know, getting themselves to the World Series the first time since 1984, and then you go up against the Yankees, the same group of players that you know you you were just with. How, how did it feel being part of that World Series for the Padres against the Yankees? Well, I tell you, it was it was it was interesting, you know, and and being able to go back, I had, I had you know, like you mentioned, I had a good you know, NLDS and NLCS. Uh, going back into Yankee Stadium, playing there, it was interesting to be on the other side of tags who had never been there. You know, our whole Padre team, you know, with the exception of Tony Gwynn from back in 1984, went once. Um, none of those guys had ever been there, and you know, it was overwhelming. It was New York City. It was, you know, uh, Game One and Two in New York. And we had confidence, but at the same time, we knew what we were up against. I think going into that game was great. Uh, and unfortunately, Kevin Brown, who had food poisoning, couldn't last more than five and two-thirds of an inning. Had he, had he been able to be a little bit longer, I think we would have had a chance to win that game. But as soon as we lost that game one, as soon as Tino hits the home run uh, and we, you know, we lose that, it really deflated us. And I think you know, as good as that Yankee team was, we just said, let's, let's just try to battle from here on in. And, uh, you know, of course, they swept us in that series. Uh, I always joke with people that, I, you know, I went 0 for 10 in that series. Uh, my hardest ball that I hit was against Mariano Rivera in game four with the bases loaded. And I always teased Mariano because I was, I was 3 for 4 lifetime against him. And that one out that I made was the World Series. And then I come back the next year in 99 with the Yankees, and I won at that in the World Series as a home run. So, I always joke with people that I'm, I was only supposed to hit the postseason in the World Series with the Yankees, and uh, you know it was losing to them that year was was interesting. You know, it's like losing to your best friend, so it wasn't so hard to watch. At the same time, watching them celebrate on our field in San Diego was kind of tough. Yeah, yeah, and actually that's right. What I wanted to get into, you had a chance, obviously, to play with the the great Tony Gwynn and. You know, obviously one of the, one of the better, uh, you know, I, I guess better better personas in regards to Major League Baseball history, the way he went about the game, and success he had in his career, and the fact that he had just kind of a quiet success to him. He knew what he was doing. He went out there and did it. Tell us a little bit about your experience and what it was like playing with Tony Gwynn. Well, I tell you what, I was I was so blessed and so fortunate during those ten years, eleven years that I played that. I was able to play during that time with the, probably the three best hitters besides Edgar Martinez uh, in that era, and that was Don Manley, Wade Boggs, and Tony Gwynn. And uh, you know, that was something special, especially as a guy that grew up with the all-time hit leader, Pete Rose, as his idol. Uh, to be able to, you know, growing up watching Pete and watching his work and how hard he worked at hitting, and then to watch these three guys, uh, like I said, I was just very blessed. And, and Tony, at that, that, that time, was towards the end of his career, um, you know, but still out there every day and, and working, and you know, you, you just couldn't. You, you just the persona that he had in San Diego uh, was great, and uh, you know, like I said, it was just very blessed to be part of that and just watch him play. And you know, I didn't get a chance to come back the following year in '99 to see his two or three thousand hit, 
but uh, you know, a guy that had that kind of a career with one team uh, in a city that just that took to him, it was it was a pretty special thing. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Jim, I want to thank you for you know a lot of good stuff there. Appreciate you being part of the show, and let's stay in touch. And man, hopefully, I can speak to you sometime in the near future. That's great. Anytime you need something, let me know. All right, thanks a lot, man. All right, that was Jimmy Lairitz, of course, the you know longtime Yankee catcher, home run off of Mark Wallers, two-time World Series champion, the whole thing. But we're going to take a break, man, be back, finish up the first hour, pass ball show, back after this. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Welcome to mtrradio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to mtrradio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, finishing up the first hour. Hope you guys enjoyed what you heard so far. Jimmy Lairitz, very good interview right there. Got in a little bit of uh, A-Rod, uh, conspiracy theory, uh, playing devil's advocate type of thing. But uh, I'm going to finish this off by talking about the 1981 postseason, and that's something that really stands out to me because uh, this is a situation where there was it was a year like no other. Um, you had Division series you had the ds and uh in before the championship series something that never happened before and of course that was all brought to by the fact that there was the player strike and uh, the season was kept down to about 104 to 109 games between each uh each team and you know obviously it's made for a very interesting season and what was agreed to uh for the the terms of coming back after the strike was the fact that the, the players and owners agreed to a split season, which in fact uh, allowed for the teams that were ahead at the time to be considered first-half champions and automatically going to the postseason. And what would have been great to see if one of those teams actually repeated in the second half, that then it wouldn't have had to play a league, cha- a league division series. The Yankees, A's, Phillies, and Dodgers were guaranteed spots because – uh, you know, it didn't. It didn't really matter what they did in the second half. The only thing that they had is the opportunity that they won the the division again. Then they would have a bye through that first division round. And what ended up happening is you had four different teams that ended up winning the division the second half of the season. The Brewers, the Royals, the Expos, and the Astros made it to the postseason, setting up you know a a, a series between each of the division winners. 
And you know, the Yankees beat the Brewers, the A's beat the Royals, and the the Expos beat the Phillies, and the Dodgers beating the Astros, setting up you know the the division series. I'm sorry, the championship series, which set up the Dodgers and Yankees in a World Series, in which the Dodgers got a revenge over losing in '77 and '78 by beating the Yankees. And the an interesting thing about it, and two things I'm going to touch up on before we finish up here is first, the, the division winners of the first half of the season all advanced, for the exception of the Expos who beat the Phillies. And the other interesting thing was the fact that the way the divisions were set up, the two teams that won the National League East and West finished with the most wins in their respective divisions, did not make the postseason. The Reds, who had the best record in Major League Baseball, did not make the postseason. And, of course, the St. Louis Cardinals of 1981 finished ahead of the Expos technically by four games, Ended up, winning a, ended up winning a division but not making the postseason. And obviously the way things turned out, Fernando Mania, uh, you know, the way things ended up, the World Series was great between the Dodgers and the Yankees. I think a lot of people wouldn't have wanted to see anything different. But, listen, you, you would have had a situation where neither the Yankees nor the Los Angeles Dodgers would have made the postseason if you let the teams finish out the records that they ended with the records they ended up having. The Brewers would have beat the Yankees. They would end up going to the World Series, and of course, the Brewers end up becoming, uh, you know, American League champions a year later. And it turns out to be a situation where both uh, both situations, and you know, it ends up working out differently. The Cardinals, who end up going to the World Series, could have been part of the postseason in '81 as well. Would any either one of those teams have repeated as league champions? Could the Cardinals have repeated in '81 and '82? Uh, listen, a lot of different interesting things to get into in regards to this whole thing. And I, you know, I find it very, very fascinating that you, know, you had the two best teams in the National League not making the postseason. Now, listen, they, they both, they, they, one of them made right by it, the Cardinals. And remember, Gary Templeton was a starting shortstop last year, that year. Whitey Herzog ends up trading him for Ozzie Smith starting the, the successful teams of 82 to 87, which saw the Cardinals win a World Series championship and two more NL pennants. But you know, the Reds, the Reds were on the decline. The, the Big Red Machine was just ending that year. And and you had guys, obviously, like Johnny Bench, guys like Tom Seaver. John McManara was a manager. He led the team to the playoffs in 79. George Foster, Dave Concepcion, they were still around. Ray Knight was part of that team. And the Reds, obviously, that whole team ends up going to, uh, to Caboodle, uh, you know, with Pete Rose coming back in, what, 85 or 86 and becoming a manager and, Obviously, he ends up getting suspended. The Lou Pinella-led team in 1990 ends up winning a World Series, but with no remnants of what was left on that 1981 Cincinnati Red team. So that was a chance that they lost out on. And obviously, they glorified it by putting up the best record in the league, you know, the whole thing. And, it, you know, it's a shame. And a lot of people don't know that the team with the most wins in Major League Baseball, the Cincinnati Reds in 1981, did not make the playoffs. So also want to thank Jim Laris for being part of this uh, program. Lots of stuff to get into in the second hour. John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, back after this.